You are listening to the Reality Church Ventura podcast, a collection of sermons from our weekly Sunday gatherings. To learn more about reality, visit us online at realityventura.com. Morning, everybody. My name is Zeke. I have the privilege of serving in our high school ministry. And today's scripture passage is from Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 12 from the NIV. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it'll be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a snake. If then, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. This is God's word. Thank you, Zeke. We are coming to the final few weeks of our series through the most famous sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. And as we do, the application really comes down to right relationships with one another and a right relationship with God. Why is it so important? What does it look like? Let's pray together and let's ask that God would teach us by his Holy Spirit this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you that by the power of your Holy Spirit and through the gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ, we are enabled to have a right relationship with you and, as a result, right relationships with other people, particularly in your church. We confess this morning that many times we do not live like it. Or perhaps there are some here this morning who are not yet aware of what it means to have a right relationship with you and others. So this morning, we ask that you would convict us where we need conviction, wisdom where we need wisdom, and encouragement where we need encouragement. So Spirit of God, would you speak as we open your word? We ask in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. The well-known Christian theologian and historian John Dixon never played the cello in his life, but he rented one and played it in the Sydney Theater in Australia to prove a point. Having only practiced for two hours that week, He attempted to play Bach for an audience in the making of a documentary about Christian faith. As you would imagine, 
His performance was terrible. But it was then followed by the performance of a concert cellist whose performance was remarkable. What in the world was the point of all of that? (laughs) He says this in his book I recently read. The goal of the scene, apart from creating some visual fun at my expense, was to illustrate a serious point. Disregarding Christianity on the basis of the poor performance of the church is a bit like dismissing Johann Sebastian Bach after hearing me attempt to play his cello suites. We know to distinguish between the composition and the performance. Friends, to one degree or another, we have all experienced the bad performance of Christians. Don't say amen. (laughs) We have all experienced wrong and contradictory behavior from those who claim to follow Jesus. It very well has probably happened within this church. You've been treated badly or poorly, maybe condemned wrongfully, mistreated. But chances are you've also behaved badly. What do we do with that? See, Though that is real, and that can and will happen in the church, none of these bad performances should cause us to dismiss the beautiful composition of Christ, which is laid out here for us in the Sermon on the Mount, a description of a Christ-like life. See, here's why this whole topic is so important. To a large degree, many of our struggles with Christianity have very little to do with the beliefs themselves, but with the behavior of those who hold them. How many times have I heard, how many times did I say before becoming a Christian, well, I don't like Christianity because I don't like the behavior of Christians. And that may be true. They have behaved badly. We have behaved badly. But that should not cause us to dismiss Christ, but rather to look more closely at what he himself said. For there is no greater critic of hypocrisy than Jesus himself. None of the failings of the church surprise Jesus. In fact... It's assumed in the New Testament. There are many who are new Christians and, you know, for a while there's what we call the honeymoon season. You're like, oh my gosh, this is like heaven. And then like two weeks go by, you're like, someone was mean to me, I'm leaving the church. And I'm like, hey, this shouldn't surprise you. Read the Bible. Maybe start with 1 Corinthians. It's like Christians gone wild. You know, like that's what it's like. It's assumed that you're going to experience drama within the church. It's all anticipated. And one of the ways that happens is what we might call judgmentalism and hypocrisy. Where people judge wrongly or they judge with the wrong attitude and condemn other people. This is what's addressed here in chapter 7 of the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew. But you need to keep in mind as we look at it that judgmentalism, if we can call it that, 
is not merely a church problem, it's a human problem. It's a byproduct of being out of a right relationship with God. And that's the main idea here in Matthew 7, 1 to 12, right relationships with others, which ultimately stem from a right relationship with God. So how do we learn to play the composition of Christ rightly? Well, here he tells us, we'll put it under three headings. It's a matter of seeing clearly, praying confidently, and loving compassionately. Number one, if we're going to play the composition of Christ rightly, we must see clearly. We must see clearly. How we interpret and perceive people around us, the opinions that we form about them, is a spiritual issue. We need to understand the importance of our perception. See, Scripture not only teaches us that by nature we have a spiritual blindness towards God, but it also clouds our vision of other people. It even clouds the way that we see ourselves. And so, Jesus describes the reality of our distorted perspectives here in verses 1 through 5. He says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? It's it's funny, right? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. How are we to understand Jesus' words? For it begins with probably, in my experience, the most well-known or at least most repeated verse in the Bible, but probably the least understood. How many times in your life, maybe even before you were a Christian or your friends who are not Christians know the verse, hey, judge not lest you be judged. (laughs) I hear it all the time. But what is Jesus saying? Jesus is most certainly not saying, hey guys, never make a moral judgment in your life. For he tells us later that we need to make moral judgments. That cannot be what he's saying. Can you imagine you come up against someone who's committing a crime, you know, like murder? You're like, hey, you shouldn't murder. And they're like, hey, bro, judge not. You're like, oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah, go go on, continue, carry on. (laughs) Clearly, that's not what Jesus is saying. Now, the word judge can be used in different contexts. And Jesus is, just to drive this point home, not telling you to abandon proper discernment about moral and spiritual matters. For he himself does it. He tells us to do it over and over again. So to be clear, he is not saying, hey guys, don't you dare try to tell the difference between right and wrong. (laughs) See, I want to make that clear because that's how a lot of people interpret this verse. They quote, judge not, 
as an excuse to say we never make matters, uh, decisions on matters of, of moral judgment. So what is he saying then? The phrase judge not in this context is a warning of judging as if you were in the judge's seat yourself, speaking with harsh and excessively critical judgment. An authoritative spirit, if you will. Though we have to make judgments constantly, we'll just say lowercase j, we must never assume that we ourselves are in the judge's seat. Because as Jesus goes on to say, we ourselves are broken people. So Jesus is here rebuking a self-righteousness, a arrogant or prideful attitude that clouds our vision to the point where the faults of others are exaggerated and our own faults are minimized, which is often the case. Now, how does this apply? Well, let's be honest. Some of us are sin sniffers. We go around looking, wondering, assuming that anyone in this room at any time is committing a gross sin. It is your job to find it. You're like, ah, I see. (laughs) It's this attitude assuming that, yes, there there is God's law, but you are not God. You are not in the judge's seat. You view your role in the church like the show Cops. You guys remember that? Just at any given moment, you're out there and your job, and some of you are even trained like this, is to go out there and find everyone who is sinning. But you aren't a cop. This is a warning against an attitude of destructive fault finding where perhaps we even enjoy exposing wrong in others while neglecting to see it within ourselves. Now, let me give you a few examples of areas in which we, we do that. We do it in a variety of ways. Some of us, we, we judge with a critical spirit weaker Christians, perhaps even newer Christians. Maybe they don't know all the truth that, that you know as of yet. And so you approach them and you treat them with a very critical spirit. I remember I wasn't a Christian for more than 10 hours when I was judged. (laughs) You see, I was invited to this Christian event that I've shared uh, before about back in the 90s. I hated the music, but the message of the gospel nonetheless prevailed through the cheesiness of the music and pierced my heart and I was saved. And I was so excited that I was a Christian that I ended up spending the night in the gym where that event was hosted. And I went to church the next morning. And it so happened that these, these Christian girls like befriended me the next morning. They're like, hey, sit with me. And I was like, okay, awesome. Like, I'm a new Christian. I'm so glad to be at church. And then afterwards, this pastor goes up to me and be like, hey, what's your name? It's like, I'm Tim. He's like, why are you hanging out with the girls? And I was like, what? I, I, don't, I just got saved. I'm not going to hell anymore, I think. I'm like really excited. Somebody asked me to sit next to them. 
But of course, then I responded by judging him. like, pastors are stupid. (laughs) See, one of the ways in which we judge people with this excessive and critical spirit is when we think they don't know as much as, as we do. And we remind them of that. Another way in which we do this is we write off people as if we're making the final judgment. And by final judgment, I mean book of Revelation stuff. Capital F, capital J. Maybe we notice some areas of weakness in them and say, well, no, you're done. You're definitely not making it to the kingdom. Uh, this is my, I'm issuing a decree. You're, you're not gonna make it. You don't have what it takes to be a kingdom person. So, meaning... You are making a judgment as if your perspective includes all of the facts, all of the details. You can see the beginning from the end. You're the alpha and the omega, and you, it is written. You're not making it. You're done. I'm done with you. I'm not going to invest in you. I'm not going to disciple you. You're done. Or another way that we act with this critical spirit is we make sweeping generalizations about people. We see one aspect of their behavior and then we assume that we know everything there is to know about them and we judge them accordingly. These are a variety of ways in which we act with judgmental spirits. The tendency is within us all. So what must we do? Well, I think Jesus is telling us two things. We need to sober up and we need to self-examine. First, we need to sober up. The measure you use will be measured back to you. The judgment rebounds back upon yourself. Paul the Apostle, when he is writing his letter to the Roman church, speaks particularly about the the, the Jewish people. He's speaking about those who knew the law, condemned the Gentiles for not keeping the law, and yet not acknowledging that they themselves were not keeping the law. He's pointing out hypocrisy. And notice what he says in Romans 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the same things. He's exposing hypocrisy. And this should hit home for all of us because how often has the church pointed out the sins of society without dealing with the sins of its own community. We condemn the sexual deviancy outside the church, but not the sexual deviancy within the church. We condemn the hypocrisy out in the world, and yet we fail to deal with the hypocrisy within our own community. We need to sober up. We must recognize that we all have one judge, and it's not us. It's the Lord Jesus. We have one law, God's law, and one gospel by which we can be saved. This sobers us. All of us are disqualified to be in the judgment seat. And so it may be this morning that God is saying to you, hey, you're in my chair. Oh, sorry, sorry, Jesus. I was, just, I was just keeping it warm for you. <laughs> Executing righteous judgment uh, while you were away. <laughs> we need to sober up. And we need to self-examine. 
We need to look as to whether or not there is a plank in our own eye before we can help someone with the speck in theirs. Paul says in his letter to the Corinthian church, if we judged ourselves, truly, we would not be judged. Paul's speaking there of right self-examination. Now, as I mentioned earlier, judge not in our culture has come to mean, let me do my thing and I'll let you do your thing. But Jesus is saying, no, all of you are to do God's thing. And we're to help one another do his thing. So Jesus, interestingly enough, is not telling us that we should never go help the person who has a speck in their eye. Notice that's how Jesus rounds out the teaching. But he says, first, we need to remove the plank. So please, Jesus is not saying, hey, guys, if somebody's got a speck in their eye, just turn away. Just let them do their thing. No, Jesus acknowledges that speck may need to be removed, but what he's saying is don't you dare try to do it until you've taken the plank out of your own eye. We need humble discernment. We need to see ourselves clearly and therefore others clearly. See, later on in the Gospel of Matthew, he'll talk in chapter 18 about the need to discern sin within the church and errors within the church. But Jesus here is telling us to be careful about the way in which we do it. We need to take the plank out of our own eye. Jesus is not calling us to be blind. and He is not calling us to be silent. He's calling us to be humble. And he's calling us to be helpful. We must call what scripture says is wrong, wrong. And that is not being judgmental. Right, So in the church, it is good and right for us to call sin what it is, and that in itself is not a bad thing, right? Is your dentist judgmental because they told you you had cavities? <laughs> right? Can you imagine going to the dentist tomorrow and like, Tim, you got cavities? I'm like, judgy. <laughs> Who's being judgmental a little bit? And he's like, uh, it's an x-ray, you have a cavity. <laughs> like, it is what it is. So for those of you who are leaning more towards like, I want to get away with whatever I can, and another Christian says, hey, I think that's sin. You're like, whoa, whoa, who's judging now? Like, you know what? You need to receive correction. What Jesus is forbidding is that you do it as if you call out sin as if you were the ultimate judge with a critical spirit. So we must learn to give and to receive correction in a humble way. We should be saying, I love you and I want to help you. Take that speck out of your eye and tomorrow you may need to help me get the speck out of my eye. In summary, Paul puts it like this for the New Testament church. Dear brothers and sisters, Galatians 6.1, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and judgmentally, no, humbly, help that person back onto the right path and be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Jesus is laying out for us here what it means to relate to one, one another rightly. And as we examine ourselves in the light of who God is, 
and the mercy and the grace and the truth that he has given to us. We do not relate to one another as their judge, but as a brother or sister with whom we all stand underneath our judge, Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus moves forward with this theme of discernment in verse 6, in what might be a very puzzling verse for some of us. He says, do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Now, some of you are like, what in the world? What is Jesus saying here? Well, there's two options of interpretation to this mini parable. Some believe that this is a short parable about worthiness. And in that interpretation, some have suggested this, that there are some people who are so dirty that you shouldn't share the truth with them. Just pigs or dogs, although that doesn't translate to those of you dog lovers in the room. Hey, dogs aren't dirty. <laughs> They're adorable. <laughs> but I don't think that that, for a variety of reasons, I don't think that's the best understanding of this verse. If you read all the commentators, it's probably not about worthiness. It's about willingness. Here's what I mean. This seems to make most sense of the parable. Describing the way that human nature can respond to the things of God. Holy truths cannot be forced upon those who cannot digest it. So here's the parable. The natural appetite of these animals see no value for the sacred things like the pearls. It is not in their nature to digest these things, which is actually true for us all. In our fallen nature, our natural appetites, we cannot digest holy truths. But God is the one who opens up the heart. So be discerning. Don't be a pearl pusher, if you will. Meaning you cannot force the truth on people whose hearts God has not opened. There are some people who think, if I just force it down their throat, if I just post 27 times a day on Facebook with more exclamation marks each time, then, then they will repent. That's not how it works. By their nature, they're unwilling to digest holy truths unless the Spirit of God opens them. We cannot force the truth on another. The standard is God's clear-sighted law that gives us eyes to see with discernment. And he grants us a repentant heart that we may be changed, that we might be helpful and not hurtful. So in summary, seeing clearly comes from God. And so right relationships depend on seeing clearly. But secondly, if we're to perform the composition of Christ rightly, we must pray confidently. I love that Jesus immediately moves to, from how we relate to one another to how we relate to God, particularly with prayer. Because when it comes to prayer, we give up so easily. 
And oftentimes we fail to relate to one another because we're not praying with confidence. Many of our struggles in prayer and in life in general often come from a wrong view of God himself. Or maybe a wrong view of myself that I don't need prayer. And so Jesus sets us straight here in a wonderful way. He says, ask, verse 7, and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, is going to give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give, give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Jesus is clearly showing us that our horizontal relationships ultimately hinge on how we relate to God. So who is the God that we're supposed to relate to? What is he like? The first thing Jesus tells us here is that we have a listening father. We have a father who hears. Do you need help? Do you need to see things clearly? Well, come and ask. God is here. He is listening. Ask today. Do it. Do not delay. Ask for open doors. Ask for hearts to be opened up. Ask for your own heart to be opened up. You don't have to wonder whether or not God is listening which is how we often feel in prayer. God, it's Tim again. Do you hear me? I don't know if you're listening. I love what Martin Luther once said. He said, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It is laying hold of his willingness. When you pray, you should not picture God with his arms folded, annoyed that you're trying to connect with him and that only by your persistence will he listen. You should picture a God not with arms folded, but hands outstretched, waiting for you to come. Jesus is saying, ask, ask, ask. Don't delay. Don't let anything keep you from asking. Jesus is not telling us this in order to get God to care. He's telling us this because God already cares. You have a listening father and you have a caring father. I love that the descriptive words of Jesus here deals with a common misconception that many of us have about God. Let's be honest. When it comes to relating to God, many of us feel that God is inclined to give us something bad. God, I was just... Praying, you know, just hoping this morning that you'd, you'd give me a good day. And God's like, oh, really? You want a good day? I'm giving you a bad day. Oh, okay, God, I guess I'll take the bad day. Like, isn't that weird? Even for those of you who have been Christian for decades, there's this part of us that just thinks like, oh, if I ask God for something good, he's going to be, oh, you want a piece of bread? Have a scorpion. Okay, God. Oh, you want a fish? Have a rock. Now, many of these ideas perhaps come from bad relationships that we had with our parents or bad relationships that we had with other people. But we should never allow those to shape how we view God himself. 
This is such a wrong perception of God. We cannot base it on our experience in this broken world. That is not what God is like at all. In fact, I love that Jesus, by the way, do you notice Jesus just called everyone evil? <laughs> People often skip over that verse. He's like, if you, every, you know, I, I picture everyone, the crowds there in the Sermon on the Mount, like, we love Jesus. He's so inspirational. I love his TED Talks. I watch him all the time on YouTube. And Jesus says, like, I mean, listen, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, I picture everyone being like, oh, yeah. Did did he just call us evil? Someone's like, yeah, I think he did. He says, if you then are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask? If Even broken, fallen fathers know how to care for children. How much more does God care for you? Who spared no expense for you. No expense in rescuing you. You have a listening father, a caring father, and a generous father. It is not that God is reluctant to give. And we must keep in mind that it is good things that he gives in accordance with his will. We must read his word to know his will so that we might pray and desire what is indeed good. Through prayer, we are opening ourselves up for God to melt and mold our hearts that our lives might be shaped for his purposes, that we might relate rightly to others by the grace that he supplies to us. And so, in rounding all of this out, Jesus comes back to this importance of relating to others. So he's talked about the horizontal, and then he goes vertical, and then he brings it back down to earth, essentially saying, you must love compassionately. We need to see clearly, pray confidently, and love compassionately. There have been many sayings very similar to what Jesus says here, even in ancient times, though it was usually stated like Confucius, you may have heard this, in a negative, don't do to others what you don't want done to you. But Jesus is not simply stating a known principle He's saying this is what the law and prophets that preceded all these other wise speakers and literature. In verse 12, he says, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. Notice a few things that are very important about Jesus' brief teaching here. That love is defined by God's law. It's very important when Jesus is telling us how we should treat one another, that that is defined by what God himself has said, not our own intuition. See, the word love is is thrown around all the time in our culture. Most of the time, we've talked about this at length, our culture interprets love as affirmation. But Jesus just called everyone evil. He's not just affirming us in our natural state. Love 
is not defined as what comes to us naturally or what we like. It is defined by the law of God. We have, in God's word, the unchanging authoritative truth about who God is and how we are to live our lives. But these timeless truths must be shown in timely ways. Jesus is inviting us to be creative and compassionate by putting ourselves in the shoes of others. Do to others what you would have them do to you. And there are so many examples in scripture of this. We're given all these principles, but then they need to be applied. Someone else who's struggling in the church, how should you treat them? Well, how would you want to be treated if you were struggling in accordance with the truth? We're to put ourselves in their shoes. In fact, that's what the word compassion means. It means to have a heart that goes out. It goes out. You're not just thinking of your own experience. You're you're putting yourself in their shoes. This command to do to others what we would have them do to us, it kills off laziness. It kills off a self-focus. And it opens us up to the thousand different ways that the truths of God can be applied in our marriages, with our children, with our parents, with our friends, with the men and women in this church, treating them how we would want to be treated even if they themselves don't put them in your shoes. See, notice Jesus doesn't say, hey, do this for them if they do this for you. He doesn't say that. Because listen, Christian behavior is never ultimately based on how others have treated you, but how Christ has treated you. See, friends, here's the gospel. Jesus is the ultimate judge, amen? He is the ultimate judge who never sinned, who saw everything perfectly, who never had a plank in his eye but was nailed to a plank for us who could not see clearly. On the cross, Jesus took the scorpion. Jesus took the stone, if you will, so that we could have fish, so that we could have bread. Jesus accepts us without condemnation, not because our sin didn't deserve it or that our sin wasn't bad, but because Jesus took the punishment and condemnation for us in our place. He was the greatest pearl, the truly holy one who offered himself to this world though we rejected him. We could not digest in our own nature who he was. Yet he nonetheless died for us and rose again so that we could be given new natures so that we might be able to receive and digest his truth to offer us grace that we might all come to repentance. And because he's risen again, he is the mediator to the Father, praying for us, 
even right now, so that we can come boldly to him. In short, friends, Jesus is the one who put himself in our shoes and loved us even when we didn't love him back. This is grace. And this grace gives us a right relationship with God. And this grace enables us to have a right relationship with one another. So we must ask ourselves this morning, are we willing to examine ourselves in light of God's word? Where is it, friends, this morning that we need to take the plank out? Where maybe we've been so occupied with the, with the failings of others that we have not seen what the Holy Spirit is wanting to address in our own lives. But friends, we don't need to do this examination with fear because the doors have been blown open for us to come boldly to our loving Heavenly Father in Christ so that we can ask and know that He will respond with our best interests at heart. And if we do, we will learn to treat one another rightly. Because listen, right relationships are hard. They are also beautiful. And they are only made possible by the gospel. The only way that we can see clearly and pray confidently and love compassionately is because of Jesus Christ who enables us in every way. So let us come to him and receive And then let us pray and press in that we might display the love that we've received to others. Let's pray that that would be so. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have made a way for us to be restored to right relationship with you. Father, I pray for any person in this room who does not have a right relationship with you, that right now, in this moment, they would repent. That they would turn away from trusting in themselves and that they would trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. I pray for perhaps even the Christians in this room who've been walking with you for many years but have drifted or fallen away or grown callous, I pray that they would turn back again to you. Father, I pray that your spirit would reveal if there's any way that we just have a giant plank in our eye, areas of sin and compromise that we have not dealt with that are actually clouding the way we see you and others. God, I pray that we would confess those things to you that we might be healed. And as a result, Lord, would you help us to treat one another rightly? I know there are many in this room who perhaps have been wounded by the church, wounded by the bad performance of other Christians, but I pray that those wounds which are real would not lead them away from you, but towards you today. For you performed perfectly so that we could all be received by grace. So let us, Lord, come to your throne of grace and find mercy and help in our time of need. We ask in Jesus' name.